Welcome to the second podcast of the management of coronavirus disease from the Faculty of Intensive Care Medicine, Intensive Care Society, Association of Anesthetists and Royal College of Anesthetists. I'm Ravi McGrath, Consultant Anesthetist at Barts Health. Previously, we discussed safe airway management in COVID-19 with Tim Cook. And continuing on from this, today I'm joined by my colleague Kareem El-Baghdadi, Consultant Anesthetist at Guy's and St Thomas's Hospitals, to talk about the Intubate COVID project. Kareem, welcome. Thanks very much for having me on, Ravi. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here um, and to follow on from uh, the legend that is Tim Cook. <laughs> um, Kareem, it's becoming increasingly evident that many healthcare workers around the world are suffering with coronavirus disease from managing these patients on ICU or more specifically from performing aerosol generating procedures. Uh, I was just looking back at the 2002 Canadian SARS uh, outbreak and nearly half of all those infected were healthcare workers. Um, Anesthetists, ICU doctors and nurses um, are at the front line of this COVID-19 outbreak response and at risk of pathogen exposure, long working hours with subsequent fatigue and psychological impact. Um, Just looking at some of the course data, about 4% of reported infections in Hubei province were, were healthcare workers. And this is about 9% in uh, northern Italy and currently 15% in Spain. And in the UK, just this morning, the government uh, quoting that between 5 and 7% of frontline doctors are off work. Recently, there's something on the WHA website, and, and they've said that uh, understanding how healthcare worker exposure to SARS coronavirus 2 virus translates into the risk of infection is critical for informing infection protection and control recommendations. And it's to this end that Kareem and his group has instigated the Intubate COVID project. So Kareem, would you be able to just give us an overview of the project's objectives, uh, as well as perhaps some of the progress so far, please? Yeah, yeah. So thanks for that, that summary. And I think what you highlighted is something that most healthcare workers know um, uh, and are concerned with. Uh, and that was kind of the stimulus for us to get intubate COVID uh, off the ground. So what we realized was that um, there's healthcare workers and there's um, healthcare workers that are exposed to aerosol generating procedures. And we get data on all healthcare workers, right? So, so as you said, um, uh, the government said between five and seven percent of healthcare workers. Uh, of those who are affected are healthcare workers. And in Italy, 9% are healthcare workers. But what about the incidents in healthcare workers exposed to AGPs or aerosol generating procedures? And we know that one of the highest risk aerosol generating procedure is airway management and tracheal intubation, which is the most commonly done aerosol generating procedure um, in COVID-19 patients. There's lots of other aerosol generating procedures, but intubation is the commonest one. So, so we really wanted to understand a little bit more about what the risks that we as frontline clinicians are exposed to when we're uh, managing these patients' airways. So what um, we... Sorry, I, I was just going to... Sorry to interrupt. I was just going to ask you, this is uh, a tool that just perhaps... Is it already being used elsewhere? I, I gather there's, there's a WHO healthcare worker exposure tool. So... There's there's various tools. I mean, the, the WHO have a, uh, a rather long uh, a tool that they've produced, which is the healthcare worker checklist. Essentially, you go and you, f- you fill out this tool online. It's self-reporting. 
Um, uh, I'm not exactly sure who collates the data, who analyzes the data. I do know that very few people that I've worked with or spoken to have been aware of that. So the key is visibility of the tool. The key is having people use a tool um, so that we can maximize our responses and maximize the, the, the generalizability of our data. So we thought, let's try and create something that's really, really quick and easy for people to register their exposure. And the exposure that we settled on is um, any form of aerosol generating procedure uh, with airway management, i.e. tracheal intubation. So that was the exposure that we wanted to collect. And what were the outcomes? Well, the outcome is obviously conversion to COVID-19. Now, COVID-19 is a clinical diagnosis, certainly in the UK. Uh, we are, uh, we're, we're not really that reliant on testing at the moment. So conversion to COVID-19 can either be based on symptoms or based on a uh, lab diagnosis. So the exposure that we sought was intubation and the outcome is diagnosis. And we wanted to know how many people who have been involved, not just the people that are intubating, because remember there's the anesthetic assistant and there's, the, uh, there's someone who's administering the medication, monitoring the patient. How often do they go on to convert to COVID? We don't have that. We don't have any results on that yet. We don't, no one's ever explored this properly. Uh, so by having a tool that's easily accessible for people, we will be able to collect this really important data. That sounds fantastic. Was, was any of this data captured in, in Wuhan? A lot of uh, information about intubation and healthcare worker exposure has come out of China. Was anything specifically caught about uh, intubation, intubators and their healthcare assistants being in, uh, infected? To the best of my knowledge, I couldn't see any granular data that is generalizable that's come out of Wuhan specifically for this. And uh, what's interesting is that there is a huge amount of variability in practice of PPE. So whilst in Wuhan, there's, uh, there's you know, a very high level PPE that's being used everywhere, that's not really generalizable elsewhere. We all have very different levels of PPE. So of course, our key objective was to, uh, to ascertain the incidence of airway managers and assistants who developed COVID-19 after an airway management episode. But we also wanted to examine the use of PPE during airway management and look at potential associations between the levels of PPE that, that um, airway managers are, are using and potential um, conversion to COVID. So how much support have you got for this project so far? It's been pretty amazing, actually. Uh, this, we, we kind of, three weeks ago, I think it was, I came up with the idea that, hey, why don't we just do a really super quick service evaluation, initially locally, but then we thought, why don't we just make it national because it's a service evaluation, so ethical approval was waived. Uh, so that means that it was very easy to roll it out nationally. And one thing led to another, uh, and I had some colleagues from the States contacting me and saying, uh, Hey, can we can we roll this out in the states? Because they used the tool, which is a super quick, super easy tool to use, um, intubatecovid.org, um, and they said we want to try it in the states. And then the next thing you know, I had uh, Paul Miles's group in Australia reaching out to me, 
So we've now opened up in Australia. I had Bruce Picard in South Africa. So we've now opened up in South Africa. Of course, Ellen uh, helped us open up in Ireland as well. We've got the Karolinska Institute who are on board now. So we're opened in Sweden. So, you know, uh, there, there's about 15, 20 countries that we're either currently open in or soon to be opened in, uh, which would mean that we're getting a wide range of inputs from different uh, clinicians who are telling us how they're managing their airways, because that's something that's actually really important. So what, what they're actually doing for airway management, what they're actually doing for their PPE, and how often they convert to COVID. So a huge amount of support so far, and it's, it's, been, it's been nothing short of phenomenal, honestly. It's been brilliant. So I mean, that, that sounds amazing, but I'm just going to play devil's advocate for a moment. So if my trust is already sure. collecting data on intubation, uh, how many patients we're intubating, how we're intubating it, why should an individual need to pay, take part in this as well? I think, uh, I, I think that this tool shouldn't necessarily replace the local uh, um, audit and local uh, practice assessments and quality assurance and quality improvement. I think it supplements it on many levels, though. I think having lots of different sites, lots of different types of clinicians, remember, what we're, we're not just including anaesthetists. We're including anaesthetists, anaesthetic assistants. We're including ED physicians. This has been approved by the Royal College of Emergency Medicine. We are also including intensivists. So it goes a little bit beyond uh, the single specialty, single procedure analysis. And... It goes beyond single center, single hospital. It allows us to compare and contrast our activity, our findings to how other people are doing and how other people are performing. And, and also one thing that we, we built in just for the end user to give them a little bit of buy-in is we added, uh, you've got your own COVID logbook. So every intubation that you're involved with, you can log it onto the, the app and you've got this logbook that's constantly available for you. So you can build your own log. So that's one of the ways that's actually also really useful for the end user, for the clinician, the frontline clinician. And of course, uh, beyond just local um, policy, it will really help us guide um, and understand the risks that frontline staff actually have. Okay, so I'm convinced. So what do I do next? How do I personally get involved in this project? It's just super easy. You just go to intubatecovid.org. Um, and then you register. Uh, once you register, then every time you're involved in an intubation, either as the intubator or the person administering the medications or the assistant, you just log the intubation. Uh, and there's just a few really simple questions. It takes about a minute to complete. And then you'll get an email once a week um, from us saying, hey, what's happened to you in the last week? Have you gotten COVID or not? And if you have, has it been lab confirmed or has it been symptomatic and what symptoms have you actually had because that's also going to allow us to track symptomatology and that's it i mean you'll it's it's just super easy everyone who's used it has found it really really quick i think that was one of the selling points so uh, mark newman in the states and upenn he had a very similar idea and i think this is why it was really easy to get them to adopt this in the states and he, he used red cap software he did this massive crf it took each person about 15 minutes or so to, to upload, I think. I think he said something like that, to upload their data. And it was clunky and it was hard and it was time consuming. And then they realized, why don't we just be a lot more focused? Now, of course, I accept 
we're being very focused, we're not humongously granular. There's a lot of information that we may not be capturing here that, that might be useful to capture, but we're trying to be as focused as we can with our questions to answer the specific objectives that we have. So, so once he used it in the States, he realized this is just the easiest tool in the world. We all have to use it. One of your objectives was documenting association of risk factors with COVID-19. How is this being collected in your, uh, with your website? So we're looking at the demographics of individuals that are managing the airways. So uh, in terms of their sex, we're looking at what specialty they're in. And of course, the, probably the most sensitive um, uh, aspect of this is the PPE there's going to be a huge amount of variation in PPE. And we've already seen that with some of the provisional data that, that have come back is risk factors. I think that I suspect that PPE is going to be one of the big risk factors here, but I may be wrong. So that's why we have to do this study. Um, and if PPE really, if it doesn't really make a difference, whether you're using FFP2 or FFP3 level masks, then, you know, this can maybe help guide our future planning for similar scenarios like this. You mentioned FFP2, FFP3 masks. Are, are you seeing any units using um, these PAPR, the powered air purifying respirators? There seems to be more call for using those specifically for these airway generating procedures. Are you seeing any initial data, uh, either regionally or globally, that people are using different types of PPE? Yeah, I mean, there's there's clearly um, a fair amount of difference in the types of PPE that are being used. Uh, we haven't done any formal data analysis, so I would be a little bit uncomfortable kind of declaring uh, too much in that regard. I mean, we have uh, 1,400, nearly 1,500 intubations so far that have been logged. But some centers are using PAPRs, but then there's also some centers and some individuals that are just using surgical face masks for intubations. Okay, so an obvious departure from the WHA PPE standards then. Yeah. You mentioned the, the demographics on the website. Um, you can only, at the moment, just put your age in. You, there seems to be, just just from the press, looking at the number of doctors, the, the age, race and sex, it seems to be in males over 50. I'm just reading in the newspapers. Again, any initial data that's coming out on your demographics? of individuals getting sick yeah uh, so we're uh, again we're not going to be doing any statistical analysis yet but that's one of the things that's really important for us to capture is what we'll know is we'll know the demographics of the people that are performing the airway generating procedures so we'll have that baseline demographic but then we'll also have the demographic of the people that get COVID-19 so this will really help us to uh, support that demographic of individuals that might be at greater risk, you know, um, like you said, the middle-aged man um, uh, seems to be the highest risk individual, certainly in terms of uh, clinicians exposed to AGPs. Maybe that's something that we may need to consider going forward is we need to be protecting that slightly more vulnerable sector of our healthcare workforce. And also, you mentioned that uh, when you put in each intubation, you're essentially developing a personal logbook. Do you think we'll start to look at these and start getting worried about our personal viral, potential viral load um, when we're doing intubations? Do you think we'll ever get to a point where we'll say, well, actually, you need to be minimizing the number of intubations, you need to be rotating through different teams for that? 
Is that something that you can see happening? That's a tough one. Personally, I mean, my numbers are definitely not single figures on the on the database now. My own personal numbers, and I spend a lot of time thinking about COVID nineteen, about viral loads, and about exposure and minimizing exposure. But I myself haven't considered the cumulative exposure as a stimulus for changing my own practice. So, and, but it's a good thought. No, no, it's a good thought that you have, and oh, I mean it. It's a good thought, but I, I really don't know if people are going to be doing that or not. I leave that to individuals. The local and, and national level collection of, of airway management activities is what you're trying to achieve. At what point do you think, you said you're at 1,400 intubations, at what point do you think you'll, or you'll have an inclination of the numbers you're required to find some actionable data from all of this? Yeah, so you're talking about a power calculation effect. Essentially. And we don't really have an a priori power calculation because the problem is with COVID-19, it's been so fluid, so dynamic. The numbers are changing so, so, so quickly. And as we've seen, there's lots of predictive modeling that have been done and some have been a lot more accurate than others. And so based on that, we haven't designated a baseline threshold for us to say, these are the numbers that we need to achieve. For us to say that our data are reliable. What we're going to be doing is it's going to be a convenient sample that will continue until, a, um, until we've agreed upon a time point where the threshold for new cases being logged is no longer achieved. How will you, once you've reached this, how will you um, start disseminating information? So what's, what, this is a really different project to other projects, I think, where the data is always is basically collected and there's a, a long period of data cleaning, data analysis, and then manuscript preparation, manuscript submission. And of course, we have, we aim to get, get the data published and peer reviewed. But what, one of the things that we really want to do is we want to have a continual data publication process online so that people can have a look and access their own data we're working on data dashboards so that people can have a look and see how their own countries are progressing the risks within their own countries because that's important in this in this day and age where we've got to be really agile and responsive to information i think that we have a responsibility if we have this information to disseminate it quickly much quicker than waiting for the final result, the end product, the end uh, analysis and publication, that's too late. I want us to be more responsive and having these data available to people as early as we can. Do you have any idea when that may be? Um, obviously, it's difficult to tell at this stage, but this is the sort of information that intubators, the intubation team would want sooner rather than later, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So what we want, what our plan is, we're, and we're working on this in the background. Again, a lot of things have happened very, very quickly. And I've, I've been working very closely with um, my team with Imran uh, Ahmed and Danny Wong, um, who have been amazing. But Danny has uh, unfortunately been struck down with COVID and he's been pretty unwell with it. Uh, he's not hospitalized, but he's been pretty unwell with it for the last couple of weeks, to be honest with you. So he's been phenomenal trying to do things from his phone because he's pretty much bedbound. And once he's up and running, then we're getting a little bit of funding to help support further development. We're applying for some funds because I think it's a really important project. And without 
the funding. I don't think we'll be able to afford to deliver everything we we hope to deliver. But what we're planning on doing is every couple of weeks we will be publishing a report. And what we want is country-specific data as well, so that every country can see how they're doing, rather than individual data or overall. I think countries uh, practice very differently. Um, uh, of course, institutions do as well, but 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 on a, on a national level, they practice very differently. So we are hoping to be able to every couple of weeks give a little bit of information, a little bit of knowledge that we've learned. It's too early for statistical analyses, but just report the data that we've captured and share that. And of course, institutions, if they're interested in their own data, they can reach out to us and say, "Can you tell us how we're doing?" And we're happy to share that. And that that's exactly the sort of thing that that people want to hear. I hope Danny gets better. I've just been sending out his uh, GIF on how to log your data um, on your on your phone. It, it's it's really good. So he's obviously still working despite being being bedbound. I'm sure you'll have no problems with uh, with funding for this uh, for this project. Do you envisage any further developments to this project? I mean, this is an intubate COVID project. What, what about other aerosol generation procedures? What are, you know, at some point we're going to be extubating these patients. Um, do, do you envisage this being developed further? I think that's a great question. I think uh, what's, there's been a couple of really interesting developments. Firstly, we've had several surgeons, not just in the UK, actually, the, the orthopedic surgeons in the States have said um, that they would like to essentially replicate the Intubate COVID project in orthopedics. Um, uh, now, I'm not sure what degree of aerosol generation they're going to be looking at, but I think they're looking uh, they're interested in looking at orthopods and their exposure to COVID patients, which in itself will be interesting because orthopods are very good at sterile uh, sterile approaches to patients, you know. See, I so thought you were talking about orthopods intubating there for, for a moment. You startled me slightly. No, no. <laughs> um, not quite, not quite. I think uh, some of the urologists are interested in uh, rolling this out. And of course, we've got probably, we've got, we've got a few plans to potentially, we're exploring at the moment, expand on Intubate COVID potentially to other AGPs. But we haven't really, we, we're trying to build the bandwidth for that at the moment. So that's a project that, that's kind of in the background that we're trying to build upon. Fantastic. But extubate COVID would be a great project. <laughs> I think I think you've got uh, yeah you, you've got a whole load of projects that you could follow on from this. Um, yeah. Kareem, any any final comments for people who want to get involved, who want to get interested, who are interested in getting involved in this project? Yeah, I mean, listen, we're completely open. Um, what we want is to be super collaborative on this and dynamic and responsive to requests. We've already been dynamic and responsive to some requests from various countries. We've been really lucky to have support from pretty much every national society um, uh, in terms of anesthesia and intensive care. But in the States, the ASA are adopting it in, in Australia, Austra uh, ANSCA are adopting it. So we've got lots of support from societies. But what really matters is the individual. Nothing matters more than the individuals who are frontline, who are exposed who, to these AGPs, who are doing the hard work in the graph. And that is what this is all about. So I really would just encourage people to register and add all of their intubations. And if, hey, listen, if anyone has any questions, is unsure about anything, we are super accessible uh, on Twitter, 
or via email. There's What's a your there, Twitter got, handle? My Twitter handle is Elbogdadly, so E-L-B-O-G-H-D-A-D-L-Y. Or the easiest one is Intubate COVID. Okay. So, so that's much easier. That's and you great. can always email us at uh, help at intubatecovid.org. Um, and so I, I really, I just, uh, it's been a really tough time, certainly in London, um, with COVID. We've had lots of friends and colleagues who have got, gotten unwell. And I just, the most important thing is I want people to just be safe and look after themselves. Um, and if this is one tool that helps people to think about their, their own safety, then that's, that's kind of a good thing, I think. So I'd just like to absolutely add, add a final comment to that. I mean, healthcare workers are our most essential resource. And we have an individual as well as a collective uh, responsibility to protect each other and ourselves. So I would encourage everybody to take part in the Intubate COVID project. Karim, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you very much, Ravi.